and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. This week we're going to talk about comedy, and specifically comedy in the age of Trump. I'm talking with Maz Jobrani. You may remember him from all sorts of things. He's been in a, a large variety of places. He's recorded some very funny specials. But what I wanted to talk to him was about being an Iranian-American who's sort of working in the age of this kind of increased polarization and anger and frustration that we're seeing from a lot of people and in an age when there's a lot of hatred out there. And Maz is always very funny. Uh, I love him on the CBS show Superior Donuts, if you haven't seen that. Uh, it's a kind of an underrated little sitcom that's going under the radar right now. So he seemed like the perfect person to have come in and talk with me about some of these subjects. So here's Maz. Maz, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Todd. Uh, we are recording this. You're hearing this a few weeks from now, but we're recording this on the day of the James Comey hearing. So I have to ask, were you following it before you came to the studio? Were you paying attention to it? Todd, I literally woke up. Uh, I, I'm a comedian. Right. Uh, usually don't get up before 10. <laughs> I mean, let me correct that. I do get up. I get up at like, usually I get up around 7 because my kids got to go to school. Right. They're 6 and 8, so I help get them ready. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as my wife walks out the door to go drop them off, I go right back to bed. Right, right. Today, 6.45, I was up. I had the TV on. I didn't want to, but I started tweeting. Yeah. And I couldn't stop. And then the kids actually joined in watching. And it was actually kind of funny because my daughter, uh, the six-year-old Mila, she goes, wait, this is James Comey? I go, yeah. She goes, he doesn't look like James Comey. And I go, what do you mean? What is James? Co-? He goes, she goes, well, James sounds like a British name. I thought he was a British guy. I go, no, he's not British. So it was kind of cute. She was expecting a British accent. Yeah, I, I woke up this morning and, and turned on Twitter and saw everybody I knew in L.A. was at like a party with mimosas watching this, which is like the most L.A. thing to do. Hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let me let me take you back to like your very early days. Was there sort of a moment when you were like, you felt like you knew, like telling jokes was like a thing you knew how to do? Or was there like a moment when comedy seemed to you like, I love doing this? Like when, even when you were very, very young, you're like, I, I like telling jokes. Looking back on my life, I realized that a lot of my friends were funny. I think I liked comedy. So I like to surround myself with funny people. And, and as a matter of fact, I just ran into a couple of, uh, friends from grade school. Mm. Uh, they were down in LA and they came to my comedy show and we were talking about it afterwards about how there was other friends of ours who were funnier than me. They just <laughs> didn't pursue comedy or maybe yeah. they just didn't have, you know, their shit together. Yeah. But, uh, but I was a big fan of comedy and I think it was probably around the age of 10, right in that range where Eddie Murphy was starting to blow up mm-hmm. and I just became a big fan of Eddie Murphy's. Sure. I still remember the moment in 48 hours when you hear him singing Roxanne in the prison in San Quentin and Nick Nolte walks in and you just hear someone singing Roxanne and then Nick Nolte, you don't know who it is. And then Nick Nolte has his point of view and he sees Eddie Murphy with the headphones on singing Roxanne. And I just remember falling out of my chair in that moment because it was such a funny moment to me. So I think that was probably one of the early moments of going, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that being surrounded with funny people made you funnier? Absolutely. And I just like comedy. And I like, I think it made me have a sense of humor about myself to be self-deprecating. I never took it anything too seriously. As a matter of fact, I think I was a pretty good student, but I would get in trouble because I like to have fun with stuff. So a few times I got in trouble because I was making fun of the teachers. So maybe I was being mean. I don't think I was being mean. I think I was just trying to be funny. Yeah, um, yeah, we had one math teacher. It was <laughs> this guy was pretty funny. The guy was a genius, 
this was in high school, um, he used to wear super tight shirts. We didn't know if he was straight or gay. We couldn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. And back then it was like, is, Miss, you know, is Mr. G gay? Is he straight? And, like, and he wore super tight shirts. He was legally blind, mm-hmm. so he couldn't drive. And what was funny was he'd go up to the board, total genius, and he'd be putting formulas up as we're all working on something. And poor guy, he would fart. And and it was the funniest thing because we'd all look up and then he would like look behind him, like look back at us to see if anybody noticed. Yeah. And of course, we're in high school and every one of us was just <laughs> trying not to laugh. But he was, it was just funny. So I remember like, there was times where, you know, you'd make fun of that situation and you get in trouble or or other times. Um, so, yeah, I think I just, I saw the comedy in life. There was another teacher who had a, she was like a Southern belle, but she was older. Mm-hmm. I'll say Mrs. V. I don't want to put these people's names out <laughs> yeah. there. Um, but I remember, I think she drank, I don't know what she drank, but I remember like after lunch, you know, leaning over her shoulder to have her show me some paper that I'd written and, you know, correct it or something. And, and uh, you could smell the alcohol coming off <laughs> of her breath. So it was all this, you know, I just didn't take life too seriously ever. Right, right. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this. You, I mean, you grew up in the United States, but you, you immigrated here very young, right? As a very small child? Yeah, so I was six years old, and this was late 78. Mm. Um, and uh, actually, I, I have, I just did a special uh, that's going to be a Netflix special that comes out in August, and it's called Maz Jobrani Immigrant. Sure. And what I was doing with that, I wanted to use a poster. I got a picture from when I was like in the third grade and I put the actual visa from my passport from when I came to America. And I looked it up and on the passport, it says December 5th, 1978. That's when I came to America. And um, one of the points of the special was to point out that all these people that are anti-immigrant and anti-refugee, that there's kids coming. There's these kids that are trying to come. There's people that are trying to get away from a bad situation. And that's what was happening with us. We were leaving the revolution of Iran. Right. Uh, things were getting worse and worse. And, and we came to America. And in all honesty, we thought that we were going to go back in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And I always say we packed for two weeks, but we stayed for 40 years. Mm, mm, yeah. Wow. I don't remember a lot of when I was six, but you must have like some sort of memory of that time. Like, what are your thoughts about when you look back on that, even though you were very young and probably didn't understand everything that was happening? I remember a lot. I remember being, first of all, I remember in Iran, Iran was the Iran that I knew was very westernized. Right. Sure, the Shah, who was the king at the time, he suppressed some free speech and and he had his own secret police and it wasn't it wasn't a democracy by by any means. Um, but it was much more westernized than what we see now. Now it's become an Islamic Republic of Iran. So there's a lot of rules and regulations that didn't exist when I was a kid. So as a kid, I remember, by the way, I remember being influenced a lot by American culture. So in Iran, I had comic books, uh, Mm. Spider-Man, Batman, all that stuff. Uh, I loved Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, I think, was loved by the rest of the world and definitely by the Muslim world. And again, we weren't that religious, but in Iran, he was just a big hero. So I had all kinds of Muhammad Ali dolls and stuff. I love Zorro. Like all this stuff was influencing me as a kid. Um, And then I just remember there was some protests that started as a kid. Again, I didn't know really what was going on. I would hear some chants in the streets. There was a curfew. I remember being a a kid. There was like a, like I'll say like a 10 p.m. curfew. And so all the lights in the houses had to be off. So I remember 
the adults being awake and us kids being awake, but kind of looking out and seeing cop cars go by and flash their lights into our windows to make sure everyone's sleeping. I remember going one time, there was some sort of scare. I don't know if it was a, if there was gunshots or what, but whatever it was, we went down to the basement of our house to, to get away from it. Um, so I remember some of that stuff happening. I remember going to the airport a few times to fly out because my father was on business in New York. And uh, he sent for my mom to bring my sister and I just for a couple of weeks. That's what we thought we were going to do. But I remember we would go to the airport and then the airport would be closed down. We had to go back. Oh, wow. So I remember I have those memories. And then I remember getting into America. And at the time, my father was a wealthy businessman. He had an electric company in Iran. So he had uh, he was in America doing business and he got in a suite at the Plaza Hotel in New York. Right. So my first impression of New York was in a suite at the Plaza Hotel across the street from FAO Schwartz. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, America's a great place. <laughs> and those are some of my early memories. I remember coming to America. My, um, my dad would do business throughout the day. Yeah. And my mom would take my sister and I. It was in the middle of, it was a really bad winter in, in New York. It was, um, you know, 1978. I was talking to somebody about this and they said, yeah, I remember that winter. So my mom would take my sister and I to go shopping. We had nothing else to do. So we go to Macy's or something. And as a kid, it was boring as all hell. But I just remember, <laughs> I love the color orange. Yeah. So I got a Snoopy hat, gloves, and scarf that was orange uh, and white, I think. But again, I was like, wow, America's great. So yeah. I, I, my experiences with America were always great until the hostage crisis happened when we'd moved to Marin County by the Northern California and that's when we would get picked on for being Iranian, even though we had nothing to do with the hostage crisis. Right. The older kids would pick on you and call you uh, an Iranian back then. Mm. Um, mm. So that's when I started, I think, was the first time I noticed, you know, I really realized that being Iranian is not good in America. Yeah. yeah. I was listening the other day to your, I don't remember the name of it, it's, it's the album that was recorded in Stockholm. And that opens with a really just uh, probably about 20 minutes of you talking about, you know, the nationalities of people in the audience and kind of trying to bring everybody together. And that's all sort of a prelude to talking about what it means to be Middle Eastern uh, in the world today, especially like in the West. And I found that just a fascinating way to approach it. And I'm wondering, you talk a lot about in that, in that special about your travels and stuff like that. How has that sort of made you feel... Uh, talking about your own heritage, about your own uh, life and your own experiences. Like how how have all of those come together to combine like your comedic, how you approach comedy? Yeah, I think that, that was, uh, that was I come in peace. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think I talk a lot about my ethnic background. I think when I first started, I took a stand-up comedy class almost 20 years ago. And sure. they said, talk about what makes you different, talk about what you know. So we would go around the room and say, it's hard to be whatever, uh, a woman. Okay, more specific. It's hard to be a woman in L.A. More specific. It's hard to be a woman in L.A. looking for a husband. Okay, good. Make jokes about that. So for me, it was, it's hard to be Iranian in America. And yeah. so then it was like, talk about that. So for the longest time, I was talking about being Iranian in America. Then I realized, I realized that, it, that immigrants have a lot of similar experiences. Mm. I was doing a joke about how my grandmother used to put her cash in her bra. And this was, I was doing it at the, at the Laugh Factory in, yeah. here in L.A., and there was these two girls in the audience that were Latina. I wasn't sure if they were Mexican, Guatemalan, or what, but they were definitely Latina. And they were laughing. And that's when I realized, oh, my God, their grandmother also put her cash in her bra. Huh. And I realized that immigrants have a lot in common. And yeah. I realized that even if you're not an immigrant, you have friends that are. And so I started, I stopped just saying Iranian, but I started saying this is an immigrant experience. And this was years ago. And also I started to see that my audience started to attract 
an eclectic group, whether you know they're they're from India or the Middle East or wherever. And it's a it's I like it. I like an international group. Right. Um, and I think that you know you talk about your experiences and people. We have a lot more in common than than you would think, and that's why. Often I encourage people to travel. I love when people are from mixed backgrounds in the same room because end of the day, you could be a Jew and a Palestinian and you'd be in the same room and laughing together. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think comedy, I think comedy can bring us closer together. I think nowadays people get very sensitive. Uh, if, for example, if you're a Trump supporter, some Trump, some Trump supporters will be very sensitive. Right. Um, and I saw that under the Bush administration as well. And end of the day, it's like if you can't handle the heat, if you're not going to laugh at what's going on, then then maybe you've got issues. You need to go see a therapist. Yeah, yeah. We sort of talked about Eddie Murphy earlier, but who were some of the other comedians who you just early on really gravitated toward and, and, and took from? I think once I got serious with comedy, I started listening to Richard Pryor a little bit more um, mm. because he was talking about social issues, and I like that. I like I like comedy that has some sort of message or something underneath it. That's why I love Daily Show. That's why, like, now I think I, I religiously watch the Colbert uh, monologues. Right. I, I really, I, I think they do a great job. Yeah. So, Lewis Black, some of these other guys. So, I think political, social stuff I really enjoy. And even at that time, as a kid, I was watching Cosby because Cosby was big, uh, Carlin. Um, and then it was just like, you know, we had three or four channels, and I had this little black and white TV that I had in my room. And I would watch, you know, I'd watch Saturday Night Live. I'd watch Evening at Improv. I'd watch whatever I could watch. So right. all those guys. I remember the Young Comedian special. I remember all that stuff, the the Rodney Dangerfield specials on HBO. Yeah. I just became, I became a comedy nerd. I really loved it. Mm. One of the things that I find talking to stand-ups and people who work in comedy is often, they sort of have this moment when they're like, they go from, they know they're not good, but they have something. And then they go to, oh, this is like, this is like a good joke. This is a joke that works. Do you remember kind of that transition from I'm working on this, I'm working on this to I think I can do this? You mean fully as a comedian or do you mean on a certain bit? Uh, fully as a comedian? I, I think fully as a comedian, but if you have a certain bit in mind, that, no, that's no, great I, too. I, well, I started doing plays when I was 12 years old. <laughs> I did musicals in our junior high school. Right. And, and the first year I went out, I was one of the background dancers and singers. And, and I remember that the, the director said, uh, it's a musical. You got to be smiling when you sing and you talk, you're always smiling. So I remember one day I came in and I was sick yeah. and, but I still stayed there and I was at the rehearsals and I was singing and dancing and smiling. And she stopped the whole rehearsal. She goes, everybody stop, stop. She goes, you see him? He's sick and he's smiling. And she goes, all of you need to be smiling like him. <laughs> and it was kind of this like, oh, wow. I, you know, I'm, I'm smiling. <laughs> and it was probably a, a confidence builder. But then the next year I got the lead. It was Little Abner and I was the lead in Little Abner. <laughs> so I became more and more comfortable on stage. And I've forever been, I've forever been comfortable on stage. Even in, there's classes where we had to do presentations and where there was times when I didn't really know much about the subject, but I was very comfortable being in front of the, in the front of the class. Sure. So I would use that to my advantage and get a decent grade just because of the presentation. So I've always felt that. So the day, the first day I took that stand-up comedy class almost 20 years ago, there was all kinds of people in there and some of them had a body language that was just not helping them at all. Yeah. But I think I was always very present on stage. So right off the bat, I, I, I was, I was good with that. It was more about, I think I lacked confidence in my voice. What am I saying? Yeah. What am I going to write about? 
And I think it took like good five to 10 years and you kept going like you, like maybe five years in, you go, I got it. And then, and then 10 years in, you go, oh no, no, that, I didn't, I didn't I, now I got it. And then 20 years in, you go, oh, I'm really getting it. Yeah. So I would say probably even more recently, like, like in the past couple of years, I've felt confident to go on stage and say, hey, I'm, I'm a liberal guy. Yeah. That's who I am. This is my voice. If you don't like it, then too bad. Because it used to be, I was, I was a little hesitant. Right. Because I didn't want to get in an argument or, or alienate people. But now I go on stage, I go, this is who I am. And, you know, if you don't like it, then, you know, go start your own blog. Or, right. you know, that's all I can do. Right. I always think of, of comedy as a place where we can talk about politics without wanting to kill each other, um, even if we have vastly different viewpoints. Have you found that to be true as someone who has a very specific viewpoint? Yeah. So obviously with Trump, I've, I've been wondering why Trump gets so under my skin. And mm-hmm. I think somebody mentioned it the other day, and I talked about this before. I think he's a bully. And I think as a kid, back then you didn't call it bullying, but when you get called an effing Iranian by mm-hmm. like the, the older kid who's a popular kid, I think that, that it gets into you and you go, I'm always going to fight that guy. Yeah. So I'm always fighting Trump because he's a bully. So whether he's going against after Mexicans or, or he's going after women or he's going after Muslims or whatever, I'm none of those things. I mean, even Muslim, I'm not really religious, yeah. I, uh, you know, but I, but I defend Muslims and I defend uh, anybody who's religious. I mean, if, if, as long as they're not trying to impose their religion on me, I'll defend you. So I've been doing a lot of Trump material. And again, it's on the special. And uh, there's been people where I've done shows. First of all, there's a lot of immigrants that like Trump. Yeah. Because just because you're an immigrant doesn't mean that you go, oh, uh, he's anti-immigrant. Because a lot of immigrants, I actually had this in Houston. Somebody, I did a joke where in setting up the joke, I said, you know, blah, 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 Trump is anti-immigrant. And this one Lebanese guy goes, he's anti-illegal immigrant. Mm. I was like, okay, so what's your name? And the guy's like, whatever, Amir or whatever. I go, well, good luck when the guy becomes president. We'll see what happens. And and we saw with the travel ban, it didn't have to do with legal immigration. It yeah. had to do with all people coming from these countries are banned. And originally, they actually had people that were green card holders that were banned. So then you start going, wait a minute, these guys are infringing upon a lot of rights. Yeah. So when you see all that, it is. It's a bully thing. And you also go, this is supposed to be America where you have rights. So... I talk about this stuff and there's been shows where after the show I've had Iranians come up to me or other people come up to me and go, listen, you know, I'm a fan, but I don't agree with you on all that stuff. And I've had pretty decent conversations and that person and I won't see eye to eye. I've also had people lose their mind. I was at a very hoity-toity event, black tie event, and I was doing jokes about Trump and some guy got up and started screaming at me. Once I got to my Hillary joke, I had one Hillary joke. Yeah. I said, blah, 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 Hillary. And then he goes, loser. I go, what? He goes, she's a loser. You're a loser. And it was a crazy event. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell just happened? And this guy was in a black tie heckling me. So it shows you that some people can't, even in a comedic environment, talk about politics. It they, they really gets under their skin. And like, for me, it's like, I think we have to be objective. So if Obama did something wrong, I would say, all right. I can see that. I can see how you get upset about that. Or even like Hillary with the mail server and having emails that were, some of them were confidential and she was careless. I got it. I'll, I'll admit that. Right. But we got to call a spade a spade. So if that's, if we're going to talk about that, then we got to talk about if Hillary's going to go be in front of a congressional hearing for deaths at Benghazi and someone's going to make fun of her or whatever, then let's talk to Bush and Cheney about the deaths caused by misleading us into the Iraq war. Right. So these are serious issues you want to bring up. And if you could bring them up comedically, great. But then when somebody's on the other side and they they, they don't want to see the truth, like right now with Trump, I just, I, I 
honestly can't see how people are still defending him in the number of things that he's done that seem to be leading us in the wrong path. I mean, I, I honestly believe that he's psychologically speaking, I feel, you know, he's a definitely a megalomaniac. Uh, I think he's paranoid. Right. Um, and I think that you could look at that. And and even if I'm a, I have Republican friends who go, listen, I'm a Republican, the policies, all that stuff I support, but this guy I can't support anymore. So I sit there and I go, okay, you're someone who could come to my comedy show and would laugh at the jokes and understand that there's laughter to be had here. But there's some people who blindly continue to support him and they will not look at the details of what you're saying. I did. A, I, I do a lot of jokes about the 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 travel ban or the Muslim ban or whatever you want to call it. And one of the big points that were that was being made from the people criticizing the travel ban, myself included, was that none of the countries on the travel ban had committed an act of terror in America. Right. Uh, and so, if you're really going to ban countries where terrorists have attacked us, then you got to go after Saudi Arabia or Egypt or the UAE and some of these other places, Pakistan, but they're allies. And so we don't. And then the Trump supporters will come back and say, well, Obama's administration put a lot of these countries into that list. So we're just following what he did. But the point is, okay, fine. Obama's administration put these countries in the list. Well, your administration should correct that at least. If that's the case, then let's, let's really stop people from coming from countries where terrorists have come. So this is, these are all very serious issues. Right. But if you're not willing to look at the logic there and go, wait a minute, why are we banning these seven countries? And the real reason is because I think we don't have diplomatic ties so that they can vet the people coming from those countries. But really, I know a lot of Iranians that have come to America and they come for the opportunity to, to do stuff. So anyway, I'm, I'm really going far to tell you that you can bring up serious subjects in a comedic way, but if somebody is so stubborn that they're not willing to be self-deprecating or see the fault with the person that they're rooting for, then there's nothing you can do to get that guy to laugh. You mentioned you took that first comedy class 20 years ago, and there's been a lot of political whiplash in that time from Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump. Do you think it's gotten harder for us to laugh at ourselves and our own political beliefs in that time, or is it? are there just always those people who are stubborn? I think there's always people that are stubborn. I try to have a sense of humor. Like with Obama, it was really hard for me to find stuff to make fun of. Mm -hmm. He just didn't lend himself. I mean, he just was so professorial, it seemed, and he seemed to be, a lot of the stuff he said made sense to me. That didn't mean I, I agreed with everything he did and said. I know that there was faults that he had, but I just didn't know how to make that funny. Yeah. But if somebody did something that was funny about him, I would laugh. I mean, whether it was a daily show or whatever it was, I personally have always tried to be open to that. Um, but I think there's just some people who, we were talking about the Comey thing earlier, you know, I'm tweeting today and some some of it's funny, some of it's serious, but people that are Trump supporters are coming back at me with, well, you know, Trump is making our country better and this and that. And I'm going, how, what? You know, there, let's, let's talk facts. And so no matter what you say and do, there's some people that you're not going to win over. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Obama was was hard to make fun of, and I think that a lot of people had this theory that that was because so many comedians or people who work on shows like The Daily Show are are liberal or are Democrats. But, like, people made fun of both Clintons. Uh, people made fun of Jimmy Carter. Like, people have always made fun of Democratic politicians. What was it about Obama that made him hard to find funny things about? Well, you got to go again. You're right. Clinton— you know, the whole Monica Lewinsky thing was a gift that kept on giving. Mm -hmm. You couldn't stop. And, and all of his womanizing and all that stuff. I think Obama kind of, in many ways, he was very mature, very uh, deliberate the way he spoke. 
I mean, you have you have that. I still have that scene in my head when George Bush uh, Jr. I think he was in Japan or some Asian country, and he gave some speech, and then he turned to leave, and he went to the wrong door. And yeah. there's this big, <laughs> opulent door, and he starts pulling it, doesn't open, and then he's like, oh, and then he goes out the other way. Yeah. So you have things like that happening. Uh, you have some guy in Iraq throwing a shoe at Bush and him ducking the shoe. I mean, there was things happening. You have Bush watching. He was watching TV, I guess, with his dogs and choked on a pretzel. Yes. I mean, those are things that happened mm -hmm. that made it very easy to make fun of the guy, uh, the way he spoke. There was a lot of stuff. Now Trump is the same. I mean, Trump... I, I've been saying this on stage as a comedian. It's hard to keep up with him because he does so much ridiculous stuff. I mean, the fact that he's tweeting and all the tweets are so, none of the tweets are presidential. Mm. All the tweets are, you know, calling people dummy and and just, just the language that he uses. Um, so he is so easy to make fun of. And I think Obama was a lot more deliberate in, in the things he said. Again, you could be against some of his policies, but he just, it was hard to lampoon the guy. Yeah. Uh, which is why, I mean, a great, one of the best things that, that someone came up with was when, with, when Key and Peele came up with the angry interpreter. Yeah. That was great because Obama was so reserved and then you're going, what's going on in his head? Mm -hmm. And they, that's a great way to, you know what I'm saying? That yeah. was very smart. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he was hard to, hard to, and it wasn't just a left, right thing. I think it was just, he was very, uh, he's a smart dude. Mm. We talked about how you were kind of always into comedy. Were you always into politics too? Was that of interest to you? Yeah, I think so. I don't know where that all came. I know a lot of Iranians love politics, maybe mm. just because we've had such a turbulent history politically. Mm. And then I studied political science in college. Sure. And I just was interested in it. And then um, I'm on Twitter all the time, seeing what people, I, I retweet the hell out of stuff. I mean, that's become so easy. You just press a button. You, so, you know, I follow George Takei and he says something and I just retweet it. Yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of other guys on there. Jeffrey Wright, uh, Ben Rhodes. There's a handful of guys that I just go, okay, yeah, uh, yeah, that sounds right. And I retweet. So, and, and then, and there's so much to read now. I mean, I am trying to read books just like, you know, like I'm reading Kitchen Confidential, the uh, Anthony yeah. Bourdain's first book. Yeah. And a lot of nights I go, my book's right there on my nightstand and my phone is right next to it. And I'm like, well, I'm going to read an article. And then I go, stop reading the article. Because you could just keep going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. So I'm very interested in it, mm -hmm. in politics. And I also feel that there's just, I mean, we got to keep, especially right now with Trump, I feel that we just got to keep criticizing the guy. Because he's yeah. just, he, I, I really don't, I, I never liked the guy. I don't like what he's doing. Um, I used to say when he was first running, I said that I don't have anything against him. I just feel that, I feel like I guess, this is when he first was running. I said that I could sit down at a dinner with him and we could disagree on a lot of stuff, but we could still have a conversation. Right. Um, but I was worried about his followers, like the people that sometimes, you know, the people that have been emboldened now to go out and carry out racist stuff, racist attacks. And that still exists. And we see more of that now. You see a lot of people, they use his name when they're, being belligerent, and they go, this is Trump. This is Trump's country. Get out of my country. You know, so you see a lot of that now. Yeah. So that's definitely gotten heightened even. But I'm starting to like the individual less and less as well. The more I, because it used to be, I thought, oh, he's just some guy trying to say stuff. But now I, I realize he really is paranoid. He really is a bully. And you can only use the excuse of, of saying, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. You can only use that so much. I mean, that's like Paul Ryan, I guess, was saying this about him with this testimony because James Comey said that, you know, he 
tried to influence. He goes, he told me, I hope you can take it easier, get rid of this whole investigation on Mike Flynn. Now, the Republicans are saying, well, when he says, I hope, he's just saying, I hope you can do it. And Comey said, no, it felt like he was trying to influence our investigation of Flynn. And then you got Paul Ryan saying, he just doesn't know how to, see, to do political speak. He just, you know, shoots from the hip. Yeah. Well, you can only use that excuse so much. You can only use the excuse of like, oh, officer, I didn't know, I didn't know it was illegal to smoke weed in this area. Yeah. Well, you're the president of the United States of America now. You won the, the job. So you know what? Maybe there should be a month-long training program before you actually take office. Maybe there should be. I mean, you people get trained to do everything, you know. You want to be a, a you want to teach traffic school. You got to go, be trained on how to teach, teach traffic school. If you're going to be the president, there should be a training program. I'm serious. Like they should they should yeah. sit them down and go. Look, you can't go to the. This hasn't happened yet, sir. But if it does, if you end up with the FBI director, don't ever end up in a room alone with him. Don't clear the room so you're alone with the director of the FBI. Yeah, which he did. Hmm. And then people defend him and they go, well, he just doesn't know what he's doing. But no, he's just learning as he goes. Well, too late. He's the president. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested by politics. <laughs> uh, looking at your own comedy, when a joke is bad or isn't working, how never, do you— Never happens. <laughs> never happens. Yeah. How, do you, how do you fix it or how do you know to, like, let it go? Like, this is just never going to work. Uh, that's a good question. The way I write, I some comedians sit down with a notebook and they write. I write by going, okay— here's an idea, let me riff on it on stage and see what happens. And sometimes you find the punchline and sometimes you don't. Mm. And, and we get up five to 10 times a week and we'll try it out a few times. So if by the, you know, several times of trying it, it's just, it's not getting it laughing. You're not finding it funny. You're not hitting that punchline. You just go, okay, let me just shelve this for a while. And maybe another night when I'm riffing, it'll come back. There have been jokes that I've done that I thought were funny and the audience just wasn't giving me the amount of laughs that I thought it deserved. I used to do a joke about, and maybe I'll bring it back. I used to do a joke about uh, how when you have kids, you do things for them you wouldn't do for yourself. So I say I took my son fishing for his seventh birthday. And I talk about how I didn't like, I'm not a fish, I don't fish. I live in LA. I say, you know, I don't catch fish, I order fish. Yeah. And um, the whole joke goes on and on and on. And, and we did, we took my son fishing with his friends at this pond. And um, I talk about how I'm not a super germaphobe, but I'm germaphobe enough where I don't want to be touching fish or worms. Yeah. And the guy gave me worms to hook, and it's disgusting. And I talk about how when you hook a worm, it doesn't die. And I actually Googled it to find out why it doesn't die, because now it's just a disgusting worm on a hook that's wiggling. Yeah. And I was, I was I really was wondering why they don't die. And, and Wikipedia at least says that they have five hearts or whatever their hearts are. So in the joke, I do a bit about it. I go, yeah, the worms have five hearts. I go, you got to hook a worm five times yeah. before it finally goes, ah, oh, you got me. And I do a whole act out of a worm being, you know, dying. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, it's always funny. It's just silly that like you got to hook a worm five times before it says, you got me. But sometimes I get laughs and quite often it doesn't. But I kept doing it because yeah. I was like, this is a funny idea. This This visual of a worm having to get hooked five times to me was funny. Yeah. So again, um, I haven't fully given up on it, but I've kind of given up on it. Mm. Yeah. You don't, you know, if you really like it, you keep trying it in other ways to find that, you know, find it the funniest way to present it. With all that riffing on stage and sort of coming up with the stuff as you're thinking of it, what are some of the happiest accidents you've had where like just something has come to you and it's just worked? 
Oh, geez. That happens a lot. I think a lot of times when I've thought about like, how did I write that joke? I honestly have no idea how I wrote it. I'm trying to think of some of the more recent ones. I mean, a lot of times it's just you talking about an incident. Recently, I was talking about uh, at the travel ban, I went on, um, I went to LAX to protest. And uh, at some point, this this girl who was showing me around at the protest, like she was kind of a She's more of a protester. She was just showing me around and we went upstairs at LAX and uh, from upstairs we could see down. And down below, there was the protesters marching and then the riot police came out and they were trying to stop it because basically the protesters had reached their time limit. They had to leave. Right. But one of these protesters, this white guy, was pointing his finger in the face of one of the riot police and waving it. And I saw the cop kind of putting his hand on his baton. And then the other cops had to calm this one cop down. And I'm watching it. I'm kind of like, oh, my God. Like, this guy's crazy for pointing his finger in the face of the riot. Like, you're going to get beaten up. And that led to a whole bit I do now about how if you're a white person born in America, you protest differently than people of color and other people not born in America. Yeah. And that whole bit came from me just talking about it on stage and how we were protesting and the riot police came out and I was like, oh shit, I'm going to go protest over here. And like, <laughs> I walk away and I see this guy pointing his finger and I'm freaking out and I'm like, calm down, white guy, you're going to get us in trouble. And how the white guy's like, this is my right to protest. And it just became this bit that came out of me talking and trying to reenact it. And I really did not sit down and try to write it. So that's one of the more recent ones that just came up about from me talking about my experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I talked with Patton Oswalt several years ago about like how he knows material is ready for a special or a, a CD or if people even buy CDs anymore. Yeah, yeah. How do you know when you've got enough stuff to do a special or to do uh, to do an album? Our specials are interesting because we get all excited. We tell the world about it. And then when you watch it, you go, oh, no, I got to come up with another hour. <laughs> <laughs> so that happened with my last special. It was called I'm Not a Terrorist, but I played one on TV and I was... It came out in August of 2015. And I remember telling, you know, putting on social media, I'm going to be live tweeting, watch it with me. And I remember watching it and going, oh no, everybody just saw it. And and after that, when I would go do shows, people would come up to me and go, oh, I saw, I saw your special. That's why I'm here. And I was like, oh no, I got to do stuff. So part of it is sometimes people want to hear some of that stuff again, but you automatically start going, I got to come up with new stuff. So yeah. what happens is you start, it's not like the next day you have an hour of new spe hour of new new material. You go and you start doing okay. Now, in an hour, I might have five new minutes, and then you and then some of the stuff that was your stronger bits. Once you start getting rid of those, and you go, wow, I just did an hour and I didn't do that bit about the protest or whatever. You yeah. go, oh wow, this is good. Then at a certain point, I go, let me watch the old hour, and I and there was a time when I watched the old hour and I was like, oh wow, it's all gone. And that's around the time I felt like I was ready to go. Yeah. When I had a new, when I was doing a new hour and I wasn't doing any of the old hour. And as a matter of fact, my manager was watching and he goes, Hey, I think you got a new hour. I go, I think you're right. Yeah. So I'm not as um, deliberate about it, but I think it's just that I just keep writing. Like, as a matter of fact, like I just taped my special for the, the August Netflix special. I taped that in mid April mm. and right away. Now I'm starting to work on new, even though special hasn't even come out yet. I'm already trying to work on new material so that when the special does come out and people come see me live, they will see enough new material where they won't feel like, oh, I just saw him do the 
full special live again. Right, right. Everybody has sort of has different tricks for this, but what's what's your go-to if an audience is just sort of cold or just isn't into it? How do you try to get them on your side? It depends. Um, a lot of times that happens at corporate events. Yeah. And you go, oh man, I just, how much time do I have to do? Like, let me just keep going and get off the stage. But a lot of times I do, I like to talk to the crowd. If I do crowd work and I find it to be really good crowd work and they still don't laugh, I go, oh, this is a horrible crowd. I, I try never to blame the crowd. But if I do some something that's pretty good and they're still not, it's still not igniting, that's when you go, wow, it, it, it kind of is them. Yeah. And you just put in your head, you guys got to, you know, I just, I just want to do enough time so that the promoter, whoever it is, doesn't come up to me afterwards and go, you only did 10 minutes. You're supposed to do an hour. Like you, you try and get through it. Yeah. So yeah, I think crowd work helps a lot with that. Um, sometimes if you go self-deprecating in that moment, it helps. If you go, wow, you guys are really, you know, you, you did, did something happen before I came on stage and just start having, start talking to them. Yeah. Cause they want to know that you're present. So that helps. Um, usually if you're at a comedy club, they're there to laugh. Yeah. So you'll get them one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my stand-up career was in college. I did 10 minutes I worked really hard on at a talent show, won the prize. And then they asked me to come back a couple weeks later. I did one joke, nobody laughed, and I walked off stage. So uh, that's, that's the, my... Larry, the Larry David way, I think. <laughs> I think he used to storm off stage. Yeah. And that was it. That was it for me. Yeah. You do acting as well. Uh, how do you see sort of your acting and your comedy informing each other? And as as a bonus question, you mentioned you were the lead in Little Abner. Did you do a ridiculously over-the-top Southern accent? Yeah, I think my accent was pretty, you know, uh, I still remember some of it. You know, we had to sing, there was a song, If I Had My Druthers. So we would sing it, if I had my druthers, <laughs> I'd rather have my druthers than anything else I know. Like we actually would like have fun with the... So definitely I did that. I used to love, I mean, I still love accents. I was a big fan of Peter Sellers and he got to do the Pink Panther, the French, you know, he played Inspector Clouseau in the party. He played an Indian. So I've always liked to do accents. I'm actually at a point where I would like to do some stuff without an accent. Yeah. Because I'm currently on Superior Donuts where I play an Iraqi immigrant. Um, somebody asked, why do you do the accent for that? I said, well, I think it's important that if he's an immigrant who came recently, he should have an accent. And I actually feel that it's important to have a character on network television with an accent who I'm kind of in the show Superior Donuts. It's kind of like cheers in a donut shop. Sure. So I'm kind of like the Carla character. I get to say a lot of ridiculous stuff and get away with it. And I think it's good. I get a lot of tweets from people going, they like the character. So I think it's good for America to see a Middle Eastern character who, even though he's saying stuff and he's kind of the antagonist of the donut shop, it still makes people laugh. So I like that character. I also did a movie with, that I co-wrote and starred in called Jimmy Westwood, American Hero, which I describe as the Persian Pink Panther. Mm. It was just a silly slapstick comedy and I got to play the, the lead. But again, he had an accent. He was from Iran. I do want to play, you know, you see shows like Master of None and you see um, shows like even like um, Crashing and some of these other shows with comedians and you go, I'd like to play a version of myself right. that's closer to me. Um, so yeah, if I could do something like that down the line, it, does, it doesn't have to be a comedian, doesn't have to be an actor, but it, but just someone with my voice. Yeah, uh, I'd like to I'd like to pursue that next. You talk to a lot of actors of of Middle Eastern descent, and they often have trouble finding roles in Hollywood. Has that been the, an experience for you as well? 
that was definitely a, a, a problem uh, starting out. I think that when I, I remember one of the first auditions I got was to play a security guard on Chicago Hope okay. as a guest star. And I thought, oh, this is cool. I said, this is great. I get to be anything. I was little Abner as a kid. Now I'm in Hollywood and I'm playing a security guard at a hospital. But then the next audition I got was to play a terrorist in, in Walker, Texas Ranger. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. And then eventually there was a lot more terroristy type parts. And I started realizing that you really can fall into that basket. And so I told my agents early on, after I did a couple of those, I said, I don't want to play any more terrorist parts. So ever since then, I haven't, have not played a terrorist part. I have played falafel store owners. I've played, you know, Indian cab drivers, all that stuff. I don't mind those as much because I feel those people exist and I know them. Yeah. Um, but eventually, again, I feel like I've done my fair share of those, um, and I am ready to try more parts that are my voice, uh, characters that are, that the ethnicity isn't as important, yeah. but there continues to be a lot of parts of the Middle Eastern bad guys, the terrorist parts. And until we have more people from these backgrounds creating the parts, creating the, the, the programs, we're going to continue to have that. So again, I commend Aziz Ansari for Master of None, where the character is not about that, and and he makes fun of it. Yeah. Um, and there's others that are starting to do more and more of that. And I just think we need more of us behind the camera and writing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, I, I do enjoy Superior Donuts. Um, I think that's oh, a fun thanks. show, and I, I enjoy you on it. Uh, do you like going out before that audience? Like, as I've heard from a lot of comedians that when they do TV, they end up liking that format of the live studio audience because it's kind of a nice reminder of that other life. Yeah. I mean, I still do stand up, So it's not yeah. that I'm, you know, I, I, I literally would do stand up throughout that sure, week yeah. when we're taping, I, you know, if it's a, if we're just rehearsing on a, on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'm still going out. So I'm getting my live audience in the evenings anyway, but performing in front of a live audience is also fun, especially when the writers or the director, we have James Burroughs directing us a lot, when they're open to trying alternative endings. Sure. Those are fun because then the audience is surprised. If you're just doing the same scene over and over again, at a certain point you go, ah, let's just move on. <laughs> but if the writers can come and, and also we get to pitch some ideas, you got David Koechner who's in there who's pitching ideas, you got... Jermaine Fowler, who's a stand-up, who's coming up with even even Anna Anna Barishnikov, who is not a stand-up, she's had some great ideas for for changing some of the tags and some of the jokes. So as long as you're able to change it up a little bit, then the live audience is is fun to perform in front of. And and ultimately, a lot of people don't know this, but you know, multicam, the hours are so much better than yeah. single cam. Uh, so for actors. And I think for the crew and everybody, it's it's nicer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If people who haven't watched Superior Donuts may not know this, but there's like cumulatively 500 generations of, of wisdom on that set. Yeah. You've got Judd Hirsch, you've got Katie Segal, a bunch of people. What have you learned about about performance? Obviously, you've been doing it yourself for, all about, for a while, but what have you learned from working with someone like Judd Hirsch or from some of those folks? Well, first of all, they're, they're, they're great. I mean, Katie Segal, Judd Hirsch are two legendary actors uh, and they're super nice people as well. Watching Judd was interesting because he comes from theater. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of times where he's, I mean, and, and it's amazing. The guy 
is uh, in his early 80s and, you know, knock on wood, he's a workhorse and they get, you know, he's the co-lead, he and Jermaine. And so they have a ton of scenes. And whenever I watch an episode, I realize that he and Jermaine have a lot of serious scenes. Yeah. And it's very, um, I think that ha- that helps ground the show because yeah. we get to be me and David Koechner and, and uh, Rel Battle. We get to be out- outlandish. Even Katie Segal gets some outlandish lines in there. Uh, there's Daryl Sills Evans. So we get to be the goofier guys and these guys ground it. So watching Judd, I, I've seen him several times use acting language. Like, you know, why would I, what's my motivation? Why would I be here? And he's really thinking about the scene mm. and I'm, and I feel bad cause I'm like, uh, I was just going to walk in and do that punchline. I didn't really think about my motivation. And I'm like, maybe I should be thinking about my motivation. So it's a reminder. Mm -hmm. Um, I had that, I did um, the movie, The Interpreter years ago. There was a Sidney Pollack film with um, Nicole Kidman and Sean Penn. And I remember watching Sean Penn work. And again, he was doing what we learned. I didn't, I didn't go to acting school, but I, but, the high school that I went to had a really good acting program and it all, it is about like what's going on. You know, you're supposed to, as an actor, you're supposed to think what was happening before this scene, what was going on before I came in, what's the motivation, why am I in here? So I used to think a lot more about that stuff right. and watching Sean Penn work. I was like, oh, he's doing that. And and it's just the basics that you learn. Um, but again, as a comedic, as a comedian, a lot of times you just go, oh, I'm going to make that line funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's good to be reminded to... Uh, to round out your character a little bit. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you, you, you've you liked The Daily Show. You were around at the kind of the height of that show. Do you have favorite memories of that of that period? I, I remember watching maybe Lewis Black for maybe the first time or maybe it was the second or third time, but he just killed me with some of the, just how angry he would get. But it was so spot on, his, his observation of stuff. Um, he was doing some bit about, I think it was like, I think it was like Drew Barrymore... And uh, Cameron Diaz and a third uh, actress had gone out to the wilderness for some show, and they were like trying to show how they're in the wilderness and talk about nature. And 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 then he just went off about like you know, yeah, you're out there, but you're there with a film crew, and you've got like baby wipes, and you're not really in wilderness unless if you're like you know wiping your ass with leaves. And that, and he just went off. Right. But it was so funny and so true. Yeah. Um. So yeah, and and of course John Stewart. Uh, I mean, he was, you know, a lot of people don't don't remember, but Craig Kilborn was the host of The Daily Show before Jon Stewart. Yeah. And Jon Stewart really, I think, brought that politicalness to it in, in a way where where we all started getting engaged. So he was just amazing to watch. And yeah. so, and to this day, I mean, I love, I still love watching Trevor Noah and I still love watching some of the, some of the stuff that they do. It's a great way to get your news uh, with comedy. Again, that's why I watch the, so much of Colbert's show because I feel like I get my full analysis of the news with his monologues. Right. I'm on uh, a radio show called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is an NPR show, and we make fun of that week's news. And that's, again, another fun way to get your news. And, and, I, and I have a lot of people coming up to me like saying, oh, I, I know you from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Yeah. Uh, I think that we, I think the news is so heavy. Yeah that sometimes it's nice to get it in a comedic way because it really, if you, you know, sometimes I feel like I got to turn my phone, I got to, I got to get off Twitter because it's just driving me nuts. Like what else has happened? And then every once in a while, a real news piece happens. Like there was a terrorist attack now in, in Tehran mm-hmm. and then we had London and then somebody pointed out there was Afghanistan, like all the, like real stuff's happening. And you're like, oh my God, like people are really dying. And then in the middle of it, 
you know, Dumbo tweets something. And uh, by Dumbo, I do mean Donald Trump. And uh, and then you go, ah, and it just gets under your skin. But then he's real news. I mean, the fact that he pulled out, out of the Paris Climate Accords. And, I, and I'm sitting there going, listen, I, I also try to be critical of the status quo. So I go, maybe there is something there. Maybe, maybe we, maybe there was something in, maybe there was a reason to pull out of something like that. But then you start hearing all these people speak from all different sides and you go, no, like we really need to cool down the earth. You know, he, again, just to point out how, how stupid his comments are, he said something along the lines of like, oh, we're putting all these regulations and the earth is within whatever, a hundred years, it's only going to drop one degree. Yeah. He's like, is it really worth it? And then you have some scientists going, well, really one degree makes a huge difference. So yes, it is worth it. You know, and so that's why it's good to have a comedic take on the news so you can laugh at it. Wait, wait, don't tell me has super fans. Uh, have you run into the wait, wait, don't tell me super fans? What's interesting for me is, first of all, I love having diverse audiences at my comedy shows. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me because sometimes I'll have like Iranian fans who are newer to America who think that only Iranians know me. So they will ask for me to do more Iranian material. And I have to remind them that if you looked around in the audience, there was a mixed audience. And then based on, like, I'll do meet and greets sometimes after shows. And based on the way someone looks, I like to guess where they know me from. (laughs) So a lot of times when I see, like, older white people, I go, oh, that's a wait, wait, don't tell me. (laughs) And nine times out of ten, they will come up and go, hey, you know, know you from white, wait, don't tell me. I go, that's great. So they are. They're super fans. And it's very interesting. It's good to have super fans um, because they'll come out to your live shows and they will be more patient with you. People know you from other places. Um, like, like for example, I think CBS is known to be an older demographic. Mm-hmm. So I have not yet had people come to my show and go, I know you, I found you on Superior Donuts. Mm-hmm. I, on social media, they have. Yeah. But I think that sometimes when they see you on Superior Donuts, they just think you're an actor. They don't know your stand-up. Yeah. Um, so that hasn't really um, translated to more people in my stand- live shows. But maybe it will. But yeah, super fans are always welcome. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna move toward the end of the show now. But I do want to ask you. We've talked a lot about what's uh, you find infuriating about Trump. What's annoying or irritating about him? What is the funniest thing about him? What is the thing about him that you find most amusing? Just the fact that he just does bold faced lies. I, I'm constantly go, shaking my head, going like, "How does he? How is he getting away with this?" Yeah. So that whole thing that happened with the what was it called the carrier plant or something where they were making air conditionings air conditioning units. This is before he became president. And he went down there and he said, I'm going to save this plant. I don't know if you remember this. Yes, I do. Yeah. A couple of things. First of all, later on, I, again, when you hear the analysis from some someone who's an actual expert in the field, someone came back and said, well, you know, those jobs were going to be saved anyway. He just went down and kind of put a stamp on it. Or eventually they're going to cut the jobs. Like they're, the, the plant is getting ready to leave. Yeah. But it was a good moment for him. But I saw him say, and sometimes I go, I got to go back and like, I got, <laughs> I've had to go back and review some of the things I'm saying about him on stage just to make sure that this really happened. Yeah. But if I recall right, I think he said something like, you know, uh, I was uh, watching TV and there was a guy from your company who said, uh, our company's not going to fold because Donald Trump promised that he's going to save the company. And then I said, 
No, I didn't. I didn't say that. And then someone showed me the video, and I did say that. <laughs> so I said, let's go down and save these guys. So I'm sitting there going like, wait a minute. The only reason you went down to save these guys is because someone showed you the video of you having said this, and you go, yeah, let's go do this. It just, it's so goofy. Uh, the other one that was goofy was I, I, I was doing a joke about how, how shocked the world was when he won. And yeah. how Hillary was shocked. I was shocked. Everybody, I, and I go, he was shocked. <laughs> and in the joke, I was saying, go watch the video of when he accepts the the victory and look at how slowly he walks up on stage. He keeps like, it's, and, I, and then the joke, I was saying, it's almost as if he's stopping to go, are you sure they voted for me? Are you sure? And I had to go back and watch. I swear to God, if you watch the YouTube video, find it. Just say Donald Trump election night victory speech or something. He like takes like three or four steps and then he stops and starts clapping and then takes another three or four steps and stuff and he just keeps clapping. And it's this thing where you go, okay, I understand he, maybe he's trying to clap along with the, with the audience that's clapping for him. But I also feel like there's part of his body energy is going, I didn't want to win this. Yeah. Why did you guys vote for me? <laughs> like, I don't think he wanted to, I think he just kind of bumbled his way in, way into it. Right. And it's crazy. So there's multiple times. The other one is you could go you could go look it up. I was doing a whole bit about how he just kept saying crazier and crazier shit, hoping we wouldn't vote for him. Yeah. And I how when I knew he wanted to lose, because that's why he was trying to say crazy stuff so we wouldn't vote for him. And I knew he wanted to lose when he said that Barack Obama was the founder of ISIS. Yeah. <laughs> and then he goes on, you can Google this, it's out there. He goes on a radio show, a conservative radio show, and the host goes, the, the host tries to help him out. He goes, sir, are you trying to say that Obama's policies led to the creation of ISIS and therefore where we are right now? And he goes, nope. <laughs> I'm trying to say Barack Obama is the founder of ISIS. And I was like, like he's actually saying that. And then later on, I, I, I heard a piece saying that that was part of what the Russian fake news was saying. Like that, that was their thing. So he had taken that and was using that, but he was sticking to it. Yeah. And then, and then he says it for a few days, and then you have his surrogates come out, and his surrogates go, well, you can, I mean, Giuliani was, well, you can make an argument that, that he is the founder of ISIS, because ISIS was created under him. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you can say that he's the founder of ISIS. Mm -hmm. And so these guys say that for a few days, and then, like, three or four days later, Trump comes out and goes, I'm just joking. It's just a joke. You people are, you take me so literally. <laughs> and I'm like... Asshole, you, you're not at a barbecue. You, you, you know, you, you can't be going for the laughs here. Yeah. Your words have meaning. Yeah. So he says, I mean, it's too many things that are just funny, but then when you go dig a little deeper, you see how ominous they are yeah. and how careless they are and how it leads his supporters who are going to take him literally to then go out and commit a lot of acts of violence. And we're seeing it. You know, yeah. a guy goes, this guy, after the travel ban, this guy in Kansas goes and shoots two Indian guys mm. and then tells somebody, I just shot two Iranians. He kills one of the guys. But I wonder if the guy even knew what an Iranian was. Yeah. And I, by the way, I would say it's Iranian. It's not Iranian. Mm. But if did he even know what that was before this whole travel ban happened? And why do you hate Iranians so much? And what are Iranians doing to you? What are Iranian people doing to you? But he hears his president say, these countries are our enemy, and therefore this guy goes out and shoots these people. Yeah. So, yeah, his words have meaning. So he's, he's I call him dumb-dumb. Uh, I, do, I really don't feel he's that smart. And he's funny. Yeah. Meaning he's, fu he's fun to make fun of. 
but the repercussions are serious. Yeah. I mean, people are literally dying. Portland, these two guys, they, they, they got stabbed. This guy that did the stabbings, I see him and I feel bad for him because he's definitely got psychological issues. Yeah, We see in the lead up and the videos of the guy that he just wasn't fully there. But whatever led for him to be radicalized the way he was, definitely Trump's speech added to that. Yeah, He's funny, but he's dangerous. Yeah. Well, I ask uh, all my guests some of the same questions at the end of the show. Okay. So I'm going to ask you them as well. Uh, the first one is, what's the last pop culture thing? Could be a TV show, movie, book, CD. Uh, I keep saying CD. Like, that's the thing people still do. Hey, that, you keep talking about it. It'll come back. <laughs> that you uh, that you consumed or watched or whatever. What did you think of it? I have been consuming House of Cards. Mm. And uh, I love it. Uh, I'm also often confused by it because I feel like they make some name references from previous seasons and I don't know who it is. And I keep wanting to go online and read some of the analysis and explanation, but I don't want the ending of this season to be revealed yet. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm at episode 10, which I thought was the final episode, but then it said to keep watching, keep going. So I think there's 13, am I right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I got three more to go. I love it. I mean, I, I highly recommend it to everybody. It's pretty amazing. There's a couple of things that happened this season that I'm already, I don't, I'm not going to say it, talk about it, but there's a couple of things where I was like, you, they're really asking me to suspend my disbelief a little little too much here. Like, uh, that's not how that would happen at all. Yeah. But uh, yeah, House of Cards. I'm going to flip another one of our, our normal questions just to pertain a little more to stand up. What's the worst show you've performed uh, and, uh, like, what are your memories of it? Like, what's the time you bombed the hardest? <laughs> you know, the bombing, I, you know, I wrote a book. It's called I'm Not a Terrorist, But I've Played One on TV. And it goes with that special, I mean, it's the same title as the special that I that, that I did that's uh, it's on Netflix currently. But in the book, I talk about how the best happens when people don't know you mm -hmm. and they're at a show. And then they come up to you afterwards and go, I never knew, this is, you, you were great. And you go, oh, this person just, I surprise them. The worst is when you're at an event and people are coming up to you before the event and usually it's a fundraiser. I'm here for you. I love you. I've seen, oh my God, I love you. This is going to be great. This is going to be, and you're like, oh my God, their, their expectations are so high. Yeah. So I was at this event one time in Dubai. I talk about this in the book as well, but it's like, uh, it was a big art fundraiser and they went all out mm. and they brought all kinds of people. Uh, and so it was like three or four hours of entertainment and I was at the end of that. And that's usually not a good thing because people are exhausted. And at the very beginning, when we first sat down, they had this like Michael Jackson dance troupe that was doing incredible stuff. There yeah. was a guy who literally would, they, they'd, first of all, they'd, they'd put lampposts in this room. Like they'd spent a lot of money yeah. to put this lamppost, kind of like, um, like in Singing in the Rain, the lamppost. And this one guy would hold the lamppost and then go horizontal as he's holding himself, like the ab control that you need for that. And that yeah. was part of the Michael Jackson, Annie, are you okay? Whatever it was. And I'm into it. I'm like, these guys are amazing. I'm like, how am I going to follow this crap? And then it was like, they're raising funds for this, for, for these victims. I forget what it was for, but like, then they had one of the victims come up and speak. Now it's very poignant. And she's saying, you know, without you, you know, I, my child would be dead or whatever it was. And I'm like, oh my God, people are crying. I'm crying. I'm like, I don't, I, we can't do comedy after this. Then they start auctioning off the artwork and uh, people were literally spending, I think somebody spent like $200,000 on one art piece. Yeah. 
And I'm like, Jesus, like these guys just spent 200,000, you know, like they got other things on their mind right now. And the auctioneer was funny. Uh. I'm all, in all honesty, when I was watching the auctioneer, I was like, they don't, they shouldn't have booked me. I was like, this guy's hilarious and he's great. Let's just end it here. And then after that, they do this dinner where the chef comes out. I think he was like a German chef. He came out with his staff and they made dessert in front of everybody. And he's screaming orders like, you know, like very Germany, like, yeah. pour the sugar and now do that. And, and they make this amazing dessert. And everyone's like, wow. And I'm impressed. Now it's almost midnight. And then the DJ just goes, he's like, okay, uh, welcome, Mazio Brani. And I'm like, really? Really? That's what you, uh, and I'm like, you know, dude, you're supposed to like get their attention and there's a lot you're supposed to do. And he didn't do it. And so I go up, I go, okay, I got a, I got a riff here. And now they're expecting something. Yeah. And I go up and I, I think I might've made fun of like, thanks for the intro DJ, you know, and, and they're all tired and, and no one's laughing. And I'm kind of making fun of the DJ. No one's laughing. Maybe they're taking that as being mean. And then someone had told me earlier that there was royalty there that night from the Kuwaiti royalty. Sure. And earlier that night, this lady that I knew introduced me to this other lady and in a way that like, I should know who this other lady is. Mm -hmm. But I was like, oh, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. But I didn't know who she was. So I go on stage and I was like, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, and I'm now I'm trying to do crowd work. And I go, I heard there's Kuwaiti royalty. Where are you, sir? Your highness or whatever. And, uh, and then that lady who'd introduced me to the other lady earlier pointed at the other lady and she was the royalty. It wasn't a sir, it was a she. She was a like a, they call a sheikha, like a princess. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I was like, how are you, sheikha? <laughs> I was like, of course. I'm the idiot now who doesn't know that she's royalty. And then I was just trying to do crowd work. Then I, then I started talking to this one Indian guy in the back who the auctioneer talked to earlier. And I was like trying to figure out who he was. And he turns out he's a huge Bollywood star. He was kind of like the, <laughs> he was an older Indian guy. So he was kind of like the um, Morgan Freeman of <laughs> India. I didn't know. I don't know who the Morgan Freeman of India is. So I'm just sounding like an idiot. And I'm doing a lot of like jokes. My wife's Indian. So I'm doing jokes about like Indians and this and that. And sometimes like if you get them at that time of night and 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 they feel like you're insulting rather than, la they feel like you're laughing at rather than laughing with. I mean, I felt the sweat in my back and huh. I just was like, oh my God, this like suit of mine, I just sweat through it. Yeah. And it was a good like 45 minutes. I, I was supposed to do 20. I think I did like 45 because I was just looking for a big laugh to leave on. Yeah. And it was just like, I, I, I went right to the bar afterwards. I was like, just give me a drink. <laughs> and finally, uh, what's the funniest joke you've heard someone else tell? The funniest joke I've heard, heard someone else tell. Oh boy. Um, one of the funniest moments that I had last year wasn't it wasn't a stand-up moment it was me taking my kids to see zootopia mm -hmm. and i didn't expect this but if anybody saw it when they go to the dmv and there's the sloth yeah who talks super slowly like a thousand times slower than that i was falling out of my seat and my <laughs> kids were staring at me like why are you laughing so hard i was like i mean they love the movie yeah. but that moment for me, I just, I couldn't stop laughing. And as a matter of fact, I know the guy who wrote it and I, mm -hmm. and I brought it up to him. I said, cause his kids go to the same school as my kids. And he was saying, he goes, yeah, we have to go into editing and really fine tune and tweak that moment. But if anybody has not seen Zootopia, it's actually a good movie. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, that moment is really, um, that was the hardest I laughed in a long time. Well, thank you so much, Maz, for, for dropping by. Uh, you can find his specials in all sorts of places in Superior Donuts, Arizona, CBS. Thanks, Dad. 
I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. Now we're going to do closing credits because that's a good thing you could do at the end of an episode of your podcast. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Mo and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is from Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. And we recorded this week's episode at the Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica. Our editor is Peter Leonard, and our recording engineer is Che Brooks. If you're enjoying I Think You're Interesting, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe it on Apple Podcasts or some other podcast program of your choice. It helps us get the word out there. It also helps us get our name out there, you know, in, in, in the sorts of circles who include people I might think are, shall we say, interesting. We'll be back next week with another interview with folks from the world of arts and entertainment, someone who I think is fascinating. And until then, it's summer, so make sure you wear a lot of sunscreen because I don't want you getting a sunburn. It's, it's just not, it's not good for your skin. It's not good at all. Are we allowed to use the N-word? I'm kidding. <laughs> hey, come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> no. No. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to be very topical here, man. <laughs> you are allowed to swear. <laughs>